My name is Russ Shaw, and you are listening to the Punk Theology Podcast. This is Season 1, Conversations, Episode 6. Let's kick this bitch off, shall we? How much of faith do you think is like something you choose versus it's just so oh, absolutely you we, think we so? have to choose faith you really think that yeah you see I don't know if I agree Theology. This is episode six, right? Is it? Uh, yeah, I can't remember. I'm trying to keep track. Uh, Arthur, our brother Arthur, is not here today. He is. Where is Arthur? Uh, Wisconsin. Family. Family thing. This is, is a good friend of his getting married. Oh, there. So to Arthur. <laughs> yeah, Missing brother. That's our. Ceremonial thing. We always do that when one of us is here. <laughs> this is the first time. <laughs> so we just started a ritual. This is how rituals start. This is how cults get started, you guys. Sure. So uh, today, the topic being uh, mystic disruption. I thought I'd throw that those two words out there, and Derek was like, "What does that mean?" And I go, "Exactly." Yeah, we don't have. Well, you know, we'll, we'll explore that. Um, I wanted to say a couple things. Uh, so my name is all over this podcast, and when we're in this group, like this is not my thing. I'm just a guy at the table. Like, I'm not the leader. It's kind of my thing. Like I'm the guy that's that's the host. I host it. I do the beginning. <coughs> but it's not. It's it's just. I'm not here to be the leader of the thing, right? Like, I'm not the boss. I'm not the chairman of the freaking board. Yeah. Nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll start, no, we got to believe this way. We'll start a catechism or something. That's right. Punk catechism. Yeah, well, um, what do you want to do when people want to join the group? We've got to have a hazing ritual. Jump in. Or, yeah, we should. We've got to hit them with paddles. Oh, does that mean we have to become members? Become <laughs> members. That's right. Membership process. Yeah. Uh, but that's part of... Uh, Part of this word mysticism, right? Um, so Richard Rohr is kind of uh, the guy. Is he the guy that's? He's not the guy that started it, but he's he's calling some of the Desert Fathers, who you would say, John, being the Orthodox guy in the group, uh, would say that those are the. Explain some of what he, when he refers to the mystics, like Saint Francis, he would throw in there as well. <clears throat> Um, what is what is he talking about, John? As our, oh, our resident Orthodox guy, I don't. I'm not an expert on this. Um, <laughs> that's, why, that's why you're here. If you were an expert, uh, you wouldn't be a punk theologian. Well, it, are you asking about Richard Rohr in particular? Because yeah, why does Richard Rohr uh, refer to like uh, Saint Francis, CC, uh, some of these other? Uh, well, so I think the Desert Fathers are called the guy first century bishops or whoever my understanding is 
um, he's coming from the Franciscan tradition within the Roman Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and there's different factions within the Roman Catholic Church. There's you know the the, the Jesuits, um, the Franciscans. I, I I don't really know all all the history behind it, but I think that in this case, you know, he would draw a lot from Saint Francis of Assisi, who had a reputation for being an ascetic, uh, for being a mystic, for surrounding himself with, uh, with, with, with animals, um, nature, nature. Uh, so Cece isn't another saint. That's actually where St. Francis is from. Got that. Okay. But when, when he talks about, when, <laughs> getting my theology, correct when he talks about the, the desert fathers, um, after, uh, after the edict of Milan, when Constantine became a Christian and Christianity became the official religion, of the Roman Empire, uh, there was there was always sort of a. My understanding is there was always sort of a, a, a monastic tradition within the church. But what had happened at that point is the uh, people started to flee to the desert uh, for ascetical efforts to uh, connect with God, and you know sometimes they wrote things down, and, and we have some of those writings that are that are really interesting actually, and they're famously referred to as the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers, which are basically. Um, Early monastics. Uh, and a lot of that stuff was really Eastern, right? What people might say today is New Agey. Mm. Some of their prayer rituals and the way that they would just mm. meditate, stuff like that. Um, I don't know about that. I, well, <laughs> if you're talking about Richard Rohr, I mean, I, I, I drink a lot from him and enjoy his work, but he, I think, would describe himself as, as a perennialist. Uh, so he would look at other faith traditions, not just Christianity, but other faith traditions and draw on those and try to see truth in those, try to see Christ in those. Um, but then sometimes he'll draw from Christianity from these early sources uh, in the East or you know, some of these desert fathers and mothers. If you, if you look at some of their writings, uh, they, they do seem sort of, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, like, like it could have been something... Uh, on, on the Oprah book club list or, or something with, with the way they articulate certain things, but some Rob Bell might say or something. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Um, but to a Protestant's ears, to, to someone who has inherited a, a post enlightenment, post reformation faith, uh, it, it can sound a little foreign or a little, whoa, that that's new agey. Right. Um, so I'm I'm rambling a little bit as, as I'm trying to fumble through through that question, but but Rohr is seems to have a um, uh, a pulpit, a, a mouthpiece, sort of speaking to people that are exploring these things and, and these issues who are finding um, something lacking right. in, in, in their experience, uh, something lacking in uh, getting up on Sunday hearing a guy talk for 45 minutes, hearing a rock band play, it's like, you know, well, gosh, there's just something lacking, something missing. And I think he's drawing on traditions, again, from Christianity, from deep walls within 20 centuries of Christianity, right. as well as um, drawing from other things and seeing Christ in those things as well. Uh, I think that some people might be more uncomfortable with that perennial aspect of it, uh, I'm personally not. I, I, I think it, it's beautiful, but but I, I can certainly understand if 
if uh, you know Christians are uncomfortable with it. He's not the first person to, to do it. Um, you know, the famous uh, 20th century Catholic was uh, Thomas Merton, and he was famous for drawing a lot from Buddhism mm-hmm. uh, in his Catholic faith. And I've heard Richard Rohr being compared to sort of a, a modern or, or like a 21st century Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. So, well, how would you define a, a Christian mystic? I know when I first heard the term, I immediately shook and said, what is that? Are we going to conjure up spirits? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Get the Ouija board out. (laughs) From what I understand, from what Roar said at the beginning of that talk, so he did a talk at Google, which I thought was great. The fact that the guys at Google would (laughs) would invite a a Roman Catholic Franciscan priest to come in to, they even, they even ask him that, why do you think that scientists and, and people, you know, who are uh, science-minded are, are drawing from you? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> but he said that uh, a myst- mystical faith is, is, is something that's experienced. Exactly. You walk it out. and Non-intellectual, not yeah. in the head. It's yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an experienced kind of faith. And I also wanted to bring up the word disruption. Uh, Derek shared a... Another yet another article about like Uber and Lyft and the fact that the uh, driverless vehicle is coming. You know, it's 2017 as we're recording this, June 1st, and <laughs> you know, someday there'll be you know there'll be automated cars and that will change everything. You'll have all day to just be a mystic. You can just meditate all day. <laughs> you can call a car and for you know 25 cents a mile and it'll take you to the store or whatever. You don't really have to. Depends on what you define as being going to be there because Uber and Lyft are already developing it and there's cars that are driverless on the road. Yeah. They? Oh, so, yeah. yeah. There's there are trucks that drive. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So the so that's disruptive technology. Anytime a technology comes in and moves and, and, and discards jobs like my job as an Uber and Lyft driver, the taxi industry doesn't like us at all. Um, there used to be these things called VCR tapes they don't exist anymore. But I imagine there were factories where people worked and they made VCR tapes and VCRs and all those jobs. I mean, of course, those, people, factories are, those people are all dead and starving to death somewhere. But that's, that's kind of how technology moves. But the, the analogy with this... Uh, <laughs> the analogy, the analogy with this, 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 this podcast we're doing... One of you guys shared something about... Uh, uh, how there was some article, I forget what it was, Christianity Today or something like that. I think it was talking about the drunk ex-pastors or one of these shows. And it said that podcasters are saying the things that you cannot say in church. Mm-hmm. So that's disruptive, mm-hmm. right? So you're talking about mysticism and disruption and seeing mysticism as a sort of disruption to... I'm saying mysticism is something that I think that if you don't, like like my story, I'm an ex-addict, and I think that the 12-steps, for example, 12-step groups are a way where we're drawing on higher power. Uh, John Philip Newell talked about oh, this. Oh, he yeah, he's that. great. He talked about it being a spirit-first approach, like the 12-step system is a spirit-first approach. Like, they don't care if you believe in Jesus or Buddha or a doorknob. They just want you to have something outside of yourself that's that's more powerful than you are. Um, because I think that's breaking that cycle of what Freud would call the ego, right? Because, you know, our addicts were just trying to... Work, work. So that's... In other words, that's just experiential faith. When, when you start getting sober and seeing that you're walking this thing out, and it's like, oh, 
I didn't use for a week, you know. Not that you should be counting your days, because some people, they, you know, they carry a date, like a, like a sack over their back, and, and that's just a, a recipe for failure long term. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's impossible. It, it was almost impossible for me to break the habit of, you know, <coughs> cooking shit in a spoon. And uh, so, so that's that's what I mean by that. So, um, I guess the question is, as uh, as the granddaddy of talk radio, the uh, the old uh, what was his name now? Now it escapes me. I just lost his name. Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> no, earlier. Uh, New Yorker. Don't suspenders. Old guy. Oh, uh, King? Larry King? Larry King, there you go. Larry King. Caller. I guess he would start as just, what's the question? You know, and so the question is, is, is mysticism the kind of the way things are evolving faith-wise? I think, well, in terms of mysticism being disruptive, I think mysticism as core would be disruptive because it's kind of anti-systemic, mm-hmm. right? Like... Like it's kind of experiential, and and you know we, you just you, there aren't any hard rules or any fast you know there's not a prescribed hierarchy of of leadership or you know this is how you're supposed to do things or so you know from coming out of a place in our culture where <coughs> religion is hyper organized and systemic and hierarchical and authoritative mysticism's kind of the opposite of that. And it's probably why it freaks all those people out. Right. Where does your authority come from? Where does, you know, how can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? <laughs> right. <laughs> Within the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, they would have guidance for mysticism. I mean, you know, Catholics, it's a common thing you hear now is a spiritual directors, or Orthodox, of course, have priests or... or um, or, or various monastics that kind of guide people along that path to prevent people from going astray. So there's some guidance there for sure, um, at least within those traditions. But as, as it becomes more appealing to, to Protestants, I, I could see it being kind of a free-for-all, you know. Um, I, and, and that could be an interesting conversation or, or, or debate is, is that good or not? I, I, well, I remember... Like Mars Hill, when Mars Hill started, and, and even Rob Bell's Mars Hill, and, and that whole, there was called the emergent, the emergent church back then, mm-hmm. and Mars Hill was kind of thrown into that, that loop. Um, so there was emerging, and then there was emergent, and then it started to become, people started having discussions <coughs> like these and going, well, emerging is good, and emergent is bad. Why? I don't know. Because that one doesn't have any rules, and it's, you know, maybe too, too much anarchy. Well, one one is more defined by theology, head knowledge, intellectualism, scholasticism, and one seeking to kind of strip a lot of that away and ask questions about it. I think that's what that conversation was about. Geez, years like 10, 10 plus years ago now. Yeah, I tend to think that I have a proclivity toward, for lack of a better word, mysticism, just because I'm hardwired with an antenna that and I've said that before where I, I think I'm just sensitive 
Um, I, I like that term that Rob Bell uses where he, he talks about having, there's like a hum in me. Mm-hmm. And I think that some people's hum is, is larger than others or their antenna or whatever metaphor you want it, it is larger than others, where some people don't have that kind of sensitivity. So I think that I gravitate toward that somewhat naturally, but I'm also a little skeptical and maybe cynical about it. Like, if you're a mystic, is that something you should walk around talking about? Is it almost like, like you know, saying, uh, I'm an intellectual? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I'm a mystic. It's like, like a label like, thing. I'm a mystic. Oh, I'm pretentious too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, uh, I mean, I, I can get on board with, with you know, people talking about experiential knowledge but I, but I often wonder, you know, if you say that you're a mystic, like, well, what, what do you mean by that? Do you have some kind of practice that, that you're um, that, that you're doing, or is there some kind of experience you had? But like, it's almost as if you got you're, you're trying to convince somebody that you are. Yeah, which is why, like, which, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm with you to, on that because it's the same with. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, bullshit. I don't care. I want to see it. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means yeah. a lot of different yeah. stuff nowadays. Yeah, you know? I, I, I want to see it. What I like about what Roar talked about was uh, was do you know breaking the habit of dualistic thinking. So he wrote mm-hmm. a book called Naked the Naked Now, which I haven't read. It's I'll, a good book. I'll, have you? Yeah, it's a good book. So because there's a that's 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 habit forming, and, I, and you can see it in culture. Mm-hmm. Like oh yeah, a very strong. Yeah, especially with dudes, I think a very strong. I want it black and white. Uh-huh. You know, good, bad, tell me who the good guys are, tell me who the bad guys are. You guys are my tribe, I need you to tell me, you know. Or, or well, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, dualistic thinking, the opposite of dualistic thinking, I think, is bringing in that third component, almost like the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's, there's, a, there's a circle, there's a relationship. Relationships aren't Well, the opposite of dualistic thinking is nuance. <laughs> it's an infinite shade of gray, you know. I always. That's not the way to say non dual is nuanced, yeah. People always talk about, you know, are things black and white or are they gray? And it always bothered me because they don't have to be gray, they can be colors, right? Like between black and white is is an entire spectrum of color. Exactly. And that would be kind of how I. So non dualist just means all the possibilities are open. and, And, you know, we as humans like. To try and strip everything down to one variable, one so this problem really ultimately comes down to one variable. Where in reality, it's usually millions of variables, right. and it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, which is scary to humans because it means they can't control it. Because most of those variables are just going to happen, right? So it freaks people out. But that's the reality of things. And if you actually want to deal with the reality of situations and address things truthfully, you have to acknowledge that. There's way more valuable. There's way more variables than one variable. Right. right. I've been interacting with some of this on on another in another realm. I so looking at psychology, psychotherapy, especially the last ten years, arguably the past twenty, but but really the last ten, they've really incorporated um, you know things like breath work mindfulness is is a buzzword um that, that's used a lot but that actually is like a like a very effective technique for um being able to sort of take on thoughts and feelings and and kind of habituate to them as opposed to running from them and avoiding them and it, it's very effective and a lot of this is derived from different meditation techniques particularly in the buddhist tradition 
and I just read two books from two secular authors, Sam Harris and Dan Harris, who's a fascinating guy, an ABC News correspondent who had a panic attack on air and then sort of embarked on this journey of um, exploring meditation. It's, it's a really good read. Sam um, Harris? What? Dan Harris. Dan Harris. Yeah. Sam Harris is the... Sam Harris is a, is a neuroscience Stanford guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. prominent new atheist. His book is really interesting, too. It goes into a lot of these um, you know, meditation uh, explorations and just his study of different... Uh, uh, being on, on different retreats, studying under different... <coughs> like, like Buddhists. As an atheist, it's just interesting. Like His interest in meditation is kind of fascinating. Um, so... So basically, there, there are these influential East Coast Ivy League elite types that you know have these PhDs in psychology that sought to uh, secularize Buddhism, secularize meditation. Basically, like let's keep the meditation, let's keep the practice, but do away with all the woo-woo karma, you know, all that silliness. Well, you know, they might actually believe it, but but they're kind of sort of appealing to a secular audience with techniques that have actually been proven now uh, to work, like from a psychological standpoint. And so Chuck and I had a conversation last week, and I don't remember how, how you asked the question, but I was telling you about some of my story, and you were asking some questions about, you know, how maybe to embark on exploring, um, sort of getting in touch with some feelings and, and exploring some some parts of yourself that, that, that you're that you're awakening to and, and ready to, to delve into. And I don't remember how you asked the question because I was talking about meditation and my experience with it, but it was something like, again, I'm, I'm, I might botch it, but what I heard was something like, do I need to believe it in order for it to work? Yeah. And my response was no. And that's the beauty of it. That's kind of the beauty of, of meditation is it's scientifically proven. You don't, it, it's, there's no placebo effect. There's nothing about, I have to believe it for it to work. It's like, it's it just the same as <laughs> if, if you go to a gym and lift weights, that, that, that will do something to your muscles. I'll break down your muscle fiber. If you have a sit and, and you breathe and, and you do these meditative practices, that will have a benefit on you psychologically. It just will. Yeah. And that's one thing I found that I'm attracted to is the older I get, um, I don't have time for this bullshit. Like it's like I, I, I would I, I would I would call myself a person of faith, but it's like um, I, I wanted something that would benefit me without needing to believe it, you know. And that's where I find like the power in it is science backs it up. Isn't that the purpose of pastor insurance? Somebody can pay to believe. <laughs> they believe for you, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but only but only works if you actually believe. Even that has something to it. So I've been kind of looking at this from a more, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of naturalistic standpoint. Uh, is, you know, there's these things out there that, that benefit us, that, that benefit our, our, our mental health, our, our psyche, whatever word you, you want to use for it, that isn't beholden to faith or mysticism or even a placebo effect. It works yeah. if you do it. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, if someone tells you they, they, they have a meditation practice and that sounds like they're trying to be cool or hipstery, if I ever say that, I'm, I'm not, that's not where I'm coming from at all. I'm basically like, I'm basically uh, contending with myself and my demons and my shit, and it's fucking brutal. 
Yeah. Like it, it, it's yeah. brutal. I mean, like it's like going to the gym. Yeah, <laughs> but worse. <laughs> like like uh, go go sit uh, by yourself for an hour in silence. Like if he told me that five years ago, I'm like heck no, I don't want to yeah, be anywhere near myself. That sounds boring. Can't stop my just, brain from running. Yeah, I start thinking but, about cartoons or <laughs> and and. Uh, <laughs> and so what, what I was what, what I was thinking about is is um, does that does that kind of press to me being like a certainty addict you know like I need this to work I don't have time for faith silliness mm-hmm. or is it more um, or on, on on the other side is it more like you know come on just grow up man just grow up I mean what were you after when you asked that question well it's just figuring out my shit and it, we were talking about that a couple days beforehand as far as you know and you'd pose the question you know what would you do if you weren't afraid yeah okay well what if it's not different on the other side you do all the bullshit you go through all the dealing with your crap and it's still the same you still feel the way you feel or you still conjure up the the bullshit thoughts or you let your mind but that's fear though yeah so what if it's, it's still so fear? Oh, sure. <laughs> so you're getting, I guess, yeah, it's like looking at the other end of, of what, what fear might look like, I guess. I, I would suggest, I, I was thinking about that, that question, and my understanding or, or response to that question, and even from my own experience, would be that you won't be the same because this pra- these practices are, are designed to teach you self-compassion. Yeah. And it's something that, a lot of us suck at because we tend to write ourselves pretty hard and be pretty judgmental of ourselves. And some of us even walk around with a good bit of self-loathing. But if, if you learn self-compassion. But in that self-compassion, have you found, you know, because you, you were talking about that being kind of an intellectual guy and saying that, well, science says it's good. But when you get into that space, have you felt a spiritual experience like you feel like you experienced God and sure there's you know psychologists or atheists who could explain it away but have you had a a you know like again uh, both Rohr and Philip Newell would call it the way even early Christians weren't called Christians they were called people of the way so you're starting to get yeah. into a like a rhythm or a flow something that's greater than you are to use some of the uh, 12 step language have you felt the I would say, interaction with the divine a, an experienced faith John I would say that most most definitely but I also acknowledge is, is your the way you're posing the question is there, you can't prove to it. it well but that's faith that's why it's faith because <laughs> if you could prove it it wouldn't be faith right well, what I'm saying is is um, either the human spirit or the human animal whatever construct you're coming at it's beneficial regardless of what you believe um, that's what I'm saying like like it, it, it's it's beneficial Interesting. I don't. I don't know if I care if it's beneficial or not. At least where I was when I was grow when I was growing in this kind of thing. Like I, I feel. I feel like. I'm sure you could explain it away, but God is there. God just is. And if it's if it's just science, it's. I don't know. That doesn't move my my heart or my soul. And and that could be called a coping mechanism. Well, science can explain away a but lot of things. Relationship. Evolutionary biology can explain a lot of things. I mean, I would ascribe it to something other, something transcendent. But, um, but, but it's also that the human animal just likes. There's something beneficial about sitting, breathing, 
and accepting versus resisting right. your, yeah. your stuff. And there's a lot of benefit that comes out of that. And you can ascribe a spirituality to that or not. Um, what about Derek? Have you felt like you've had some kind of a relationship with the, the nuance? So to speak, I you were afraid you were there. I don't know if anything else is going on. Like you felt like something else was there besides you. Like you were in the presence of something greater than yourself. Some, have you ever felt something like that? Yeah, but I don't know that it becomes from a practice I'm doing, per se. Okay. Um, I think mind has a lot more to do with just situational stuff. Um, I definitely haven't done it. Well, you know, I haven't been meditating or anything like that and felt like uh, that happened. Um, I don't know, but I tend to be much more skeptical and pragmatic about that type of stuff. And it doesn't bother me if God's not real. Mm. Like, yeah. Um, not usually. Sometimes it does. I wouldn't say that absolutely, but most of the time. Like, I'm kind of closer to John, I'm probably, or maybe even more extreme than John on that. Like, I do it because it helps, not because I need it to be true. All right. Yeah. Sort of. Mike McHarg is an interesting guy, science Mike. Uh, Arthur asked him a question at, at his event in, uh, in Portland last year, and he fielded a similar question just last week on his podcast where someone asked him invariably, you know, I'm, I'm deconstructing my faith and I'm, I'm losing it or I don't have it anymore. What would you recommend to sort of kindle a, a mystical experience? And, and nine times out of ten, you know, he... Recommend ten out of ten. This is far, I've heard him feel that at least three times on his podcast is he will recommend a practice of meditation yeah. to sort of cultivate those experiences. Right. Well, that's when you pose the you know looking into the mysticalism and the disruptive. I look at it as disruptive comes first and then mystical comes second. Right. So it's when you're deconstructing your faith, figuring out the why do I believe what I believe? <clears throat> You're going to be disruptive. Right. And then you have the experience. Anybody in churches who ever does that is going to experience that, right? Yeah. You start asking those questions like, oh, we don't ask those kind of questions. I don't know. If maybe listeners could relate to that. Anyway, I'm sorry. Is that your experience the last 10, 20 years of Christianity? It depends on the church, you know? Or you say something that people... You know, they they kind of wince at or oh, he it's asked very that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real quiet. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what, what were you? Yeah, sorry. But that that's where the your experiences come in. You know, so you're deconstructing your faith. You're causing this huge disruption, and people think you're just batshit crazy. Right. Um, Heretic. Yeah. <laughs> God comes in and moves. Yeah. And you know, you you gain some experience, and you're faith is strengthened yeah. now you may not have the same faith or believe the same lies or that's where truths. I think Arthur you know as an atheist I think is a, it has more faith or is in a a place of uh, free thinking faith which is stronger than a lot of evangelicals mm-hmm. I say most evangelicals today 
because they just believe it because someone told them to. Or the guy with the vein on stage who yells a lot <laughs> is is they're they're channeling him so that he's the, he's why they believe and they just you know when you get outside of that yeah it's it's scary but but how much of I wanted to ask the question too but just pose this how much of deconstruct reconstruct is just another form of dualistic thinking like oh that didn't work so it's wrong and now I'm gonna do this these. This is good. This is bad. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I, that's something I really struggle with. <coughs> constructionist types is how quickly some of them are are demonizing the other side. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's absolutely not the way to do it anymore. And they, yeah, and fit are dualistic in their thinking too. Like, you know, how like it's a level of consciousness. Maybe they're just conscious at that level. Right. And like, did you actually take the time to sort through all that stuff and figure out what was good and what was bad? Or did you get burned and run as fast as you could and you don't even want to talk about it anymore? Like, that's just as dualistic. And it's, you know... I've I've always struggled with the people that are pendulum swingers (laughs) that, you know, have a bad experience and go as opposite as they possibly can and then get burned by that extreme and then swing back the other way and they can't ever just find a, a happiness and, you know... In non-perfection, right, right. Just learn to be content with the fact that it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be what you want it to be in your head, which is so brings us into. I discussed beforehand that Arthur had sent out an article about uh, uh, humorous nihilism. Oh, that's such a good article. Great article. I think it's called deconstructing or no defending. It's called defending humorous nihilism, um, which is a really interesting article, but. A good uh, example of that would be the the, the film uh, The Big Lebowski, right? Well, those are nihilists. <laughs> so humorous, but that's not what humorous. That's not like, <laughs> it's a comedy. The film's right. a comedy, right? But, and the but the problem that nihilists fall into is that they tend to be absolutists themselves, mm-hmm. and that they say there there's absolutely no God, there's absolutely yeah. no meaning, there's absolute like. But let me tell you, how I find meaning in that. But a more balanced nihilism would be just acknowledging. That no, there's no such thing as perfection. Right. Like there's no system that works 100% of the time. Yeah. So, and it doesn't, and a lot of nihilists, you know, get into nihilism and then they instantly swing to, well, fuck everything. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, screw it. I'm just going to get drunk and, and, you know, and do whatever the fuck I want because nothing matters. Um, but you can also choose, you know, humorous nihilism kind of more swings towards. You can still do good. You can still think, make things better. They're just not going to be perfect. Like, why are you obsessed with making things <laughs> yeah. perfect? Yeah. Like, why do you have to have this ideal in your head and you're not going to be content unless you reach that ideal? Like, can't, can't you be happy making it 5% better? Yeah. Like, no, no, because if, I'm not, if I don't do it perfect, then I'm not going to get into heaven. Right or yeah, or I'm just not going to... You know, the heaven and hell thing is a huge driver. And I think you struggle with no, oh. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I used to, and that's Steve and I share this. Uh, we were both raised in a uh, CMA style church, and that's a. I think that's a huge part of the CMA is you got to do this, and then you have to do this. You know, it's, if you don't do the altar call, and then you don't get baptized, and then you don't do the altar call, and you don't get baptized, and you just repeat, you are not going to heaven. What's CMA? Forgive me. Christian Missionary Alliance. Oh, okay. Amy Simpson. A.W. Tozer. Tozer, I know that name. Was yeah. a uh, thing. 
the formula. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's, yeah. I think, that's yeah. why I think that story on, or that uh, video of uh, the gospel for those broken by the church, by that Rose, Rosenblatt, I think was his name. Um, so, touched me, because that's the whole, the whole thing, and that's where the, the, the law, the gospel, and then back in the church, it was back to the law again. Because right. you're saved now. To stay saved, you got to be doing this. I kind of see everything that is maybe drawing from a, a more mystical worldview, for lack of a better way of putting it, is just seeing it as it's all, gosh, another stupid buzzword, but like it's all a journey, though. Like, yeah. yeah. Is, is, there's, I think there's something to be said for genuinely and sincerely outgrowing something, outgrowing yep. your former faith, life, construct, church. And, and moving on to something different, doing something different. Not like a pendulum like so much Derek's talking about. Maybe seeing the value and where you came from. And, and, you know, seeing the damage that was done too, but seeing the value of it. And you grew from it and you're different because of it. And it did benefit you. And there are relationships that were forged there. Like, like seeing the benefit of it, but then also having room to change and grow and morph into something else completely different. Uh -huh. I don't think anyone knows where they're going to be in five years. No. We could all be Hindus or something. <laughs> that, that might be weird, actually. <laughs> well, but I, I approach it though Too much. with with I, I try to approach it with with, with some humility in that. I mean, we're all I I don't know. Like I think you could make the case that if you're a Christian in North America, it's probably because your parents were, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's it's where you grew up. If you were born in India in India, you'd probably be a Hindu or a Sikh. It just is. I mean, just so have some humility with the, the faith construct that you inherited is largely because of the air that you breathe and the geography that you walk on. Um, so but I like, but I also like the fact that, you know, Christian missions, when it's done right, when it's not like, what was that South Park episode where the, the people bring the Bibles to the kids and raise Christians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you bring the, oh, Bible means food. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, we love the Bible. So, so there's something to that, but, but I mean, I think when it, when it changes the heart, when, when people go, oh, love isn't, you know, Sharia law, for example, right? Ooh, there I just made a, a but Sharia law, for example, it is is abusive. I mean, there's some of that stuff in there is abusive towards women, is treating women as property. It is, it, it, it's not. Yes, you could grow up in some of these, these Muslim areas. I'm not saying Christianity is better than, but in some way, the Muslim faith hasn't had their reformation yet, you know what I'm saying, or whatever it is. But they haven't worked out the love uh, part to where... I don't know. That's one thing about the Trinity, right? There's just something to this dance that's not other religions. It's not, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, not that I say we're better than them. Yeah. I'm just saying that it's there's just something to this story. Hindus have gospel. a caste system. Muslims have Sharia law, and, yeah. and <clears throat> Catholic priests are, have a boy thing with little boys. It's a problem. <laughs> I mean, there's always something. I mean, every, every faith. Has its beauty and its and its shadows, but um, if they do enough hail marys, then they can get moved to a different, <laughs> a different place. level of heaven. <laughs> no, to no, a just a church. church. <laughs> oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bless more little boys. 
But that, yeah, that's that's just a sick, hard thing for me. <laughs> so the way that, don't get me started on the Catholic Church. I, some of my, I could go some, all day. Several years ago, we were at Morris Hill, and some some of my you know atheist buddies in Seattle would give me a hard time about it. And like, hey, are you gonna come out tonight, or you know what's going on? Like, are you too busy going to Bible study, or do you have to like beat your wife? You know, <laughs> like, no, I'm like, not beating my wife tonight. I had to take out her ball gag so she could homeschool <laughs> our kids. <you> know? <laughs> I'd play along, you know. Right. It's okay as long as you do it on the city hall steps, right? <laughs> so, yeah. My wife sense. never wore a ball gag in, in, to home I didn't. I just declared. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't like wife beating <laughs> nights. Or, yeah. Just to yeah. clarify if there's any questions. And that's another funny thing about that. Like, our community group had some strong women in it, right? There was no, you know, I mean, I didn't. we didn't see that part of the whole Mars Hill thing. None of us were, you know, I mean, the, the fact that women couldn't be pastors, but there were still women who were deacons. It was almost the same thing. It's like this weird sort of legalistic thing. Like you could be a deacon, but you can't be a elder or a pastor, but you can do the same exact shit that, a, that an elder or a, or pastor does. You just can't call it that you know, because we're, because yeah, because we're feminists or something. Yeah, the title. So I don't know, but I do see where the the abuse of women was like uh, Stephanie, the gal that does fake Driscoll. She oh, she's great, some, Stephanie. Yeah, she's great, and she did. She talked about you know just being some of these therapy groups, and these women are really having a hard time with trying to keep this identity of a Christian wife at Mars Hill, and and uh, having panic attacks over it and stuff that they can't, you know. Do you'll get a job or whatever it is that you have to stay home with the kids? And, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's craziness to me. Yeah. Like, if your wife wanted to have a career, had some sort of professional ambition, or and oh no, you can't. You need to stay home with the kids. Like, yeah. if your wife has the capacity of making two hundred thousand dollars a year, and the husband makes thirty, the husband better keep his job, and the wife better stay home. That always. That's weird. Always really bothered me. Yeah. Yeah. There was one gal at Marcel who was a lawyer. (laughs) And and it was that situation. Her husband was a guy who made, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year and she was an attorney. Right. She's like, No, I'm high. Well that's kind of the thing with our our community group too, is we didn't take him that seriously. I think I don't think we took Driscoll that seriously. He was just the guy on the stage who He had interesting he said, ideas. Yeah, he had, he had some good ideas. ideas, he had some bad ideas. It's okay to talk about yeah. where you disagree with it. Yeah. Not... And we were just, you know, nobody in our in our group thought, Oh well, we better do what he says, like we were in lockstep, like with some kind of cult or something. Well, and it's not just Driscoll either. Um when I first got out of school was mm-hmm. in two thousand ten. Good luck trying to find a job as an engineer. Especially the engineering yeah, idea. I mean, really good bad. freaking luck. Mac's wife, she landed an awesome job at Boeing and brought us out of here. Well, I ain't going to work. I'm going to take care of the kids. I can't find a job to begin with. Uh-huh. And my entire family, you're not going to get a job? You need you need to get a job. She needs to take care of the kids. <laughs> nope. No, 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 no. She doesn't. That's the Christian thing. She's making a ton of money. I don't need to work. <laughs> Nor do I want to. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and there, I think, are some women though that struggle with that as well. Is how am I the breadwinner? You know, if I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year, 
and you're making $30,000 a year. I think there's some women that, that will resent that. Because yeah, they, they don't the short end of the stick. Yeah, they feel like this is not, well, maybe the, perhaps the way they were raised. This is not the way it was supposed to be. I was supposed to be Susie Homemaker. I was supposed to be the rock star, wife, fix dinner, clean house, take the kids, pick up the kids. Going and then the in school. those scenarios where they feel like they have to work, I think that's hard on them. That's an issue in any type of relationship, though. That's just an expectation mm-hmm. issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think something so. you should have talked about in premarital counseling. Well, I think you can even remove yourself from a faith construct and look at it from behavioral psychology. I actually just heard something about this recently. And, well, I, I don't know. I'd like to think that I'm fairly progressive on, on on the matter but there there is that question of does do women really respect a man that they have to provide for just from a mm-hmm. behavioral psychology standpoint rightly or wrongly right. is that a hardwiring thing where it's like uh no you're supposed to take care of me i i don't know there's probably a lot of nature versus nurture in that question it's pretty loaded but uh, the studies what i was i can't cite like a specific source but what i was hearing sort of summarized is Google is, it. Yeah, Google. The, 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 the evidence seems to suggest that, that yeah, that, like marriages where the, the, the woman's the breadwinner are more likely in, a, in divorce than, than not. So Just from anecdotal evidence, I've seen people that don't have kids but have the woman working and the guy just kind of screwing around and then the opposite. Usually the woman's taking care of stuff and being responsible, but the ones where I've seen where the guy stays home, he's out on his fucking boat. Just That's more of an anecdotal thing for me. Like I've definitely noticed that. Like, huh, that's, that's and a that's nice part of this, for you. That's also part of this <laughs> disruption, too, because I think when churches get really hard line on, on gender rules, right. that's when you start getting in trouble. You right. Know? Yeah, again, it's a thing where you have to have some nuance. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's a trouble that, like that, that the chauvinistic standpoint has and the problem that the, the feminist standpoint has. You know, some of the feminists are, you know, you cannot stay at home. It's like, well, I mean, ideally, well, I anybody can do whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah, you want. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we're fighting for. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, you know, I, I was having the men tell me I had to stay at home, and then I wanted to stay at home, and now I'm having you tell me I can't stay at home. Like... Can I just do what I fucking want to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, Derek, because then you're not following authority. Right. Authority. <laughs> right? <laughs> you need to be the man and steward your authority well. <laughs> so much. Oh, so you came out with a song, Fuck Authority. Oh, it's uh, Pennywise. 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 Yeah. Punk band, yeah. Fuck Authority. Uh, How about the subject? Okay. Carefully. <laughs> Carefully. I think relationships are, are disruptive like that. Like relationships, if you if they're on, if people are in a church or you know some kind of a religious community are honest about their relationships, and I would even say this about Muslims. I I know a couple of Muslims, and and they're like they're, their marriages don't look like Sharia law. Their wives aren't running around with. Sometimes they'll wear a head covering, but they don't do it all the time, and it's not like something that you know. Oh, you have to stay home and. Some of them work, you know, and it's, it's, it's very, there was a guy who did a TED talk and he's a, he's a, he says he's a professional, he's a writer. He writes for, uh, I forget, Wall Street Journal or something like that. He calls himself a professional amateur. <laughs> so, and then he writes a book about something. So he decided to do a year living biblically. Have you heard oh, of Oh yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. So he did. 
this year living biblically, and he studies all the laws in the Bible. It's like 700 laws, and he's going to try and abide by all of them for a year. <laughs> and, uh, and it was... It's the, called it being an Orthodox Jew. This guy's not unique. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, he's, but his point was... His point was at the end of it is that you can't you can't do all the law. He he also said this was interesting too. Actually, <laughs> the Orthodox Jews do a pretty damn good job. They do, but, but there's a lot of there's a lot of fucked up stuff though, and some Hasidic. There's a lot of fucked up stuff. Everywhere. True, but 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 I, I think I think fundamentalist religion it's more ripe in fundamentalism than not those. Maybe that's an, no, I don't know if that's anecdotal. I think that there's some uh, studies that have shown that those sorts of communities are more ripe for abuse. Because the basic mm. idea of fundamentalism is you trying to get yourself to do th- something that your body and nature doesn't want you to do, yeah, and then having right? and then disincentivizing telling the truth about that. Well, and shunning and shaming. People that don't or can't or fall uh-huh. away from it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. This yeah. Incentivizing. His point was no one can do them all, and, and we all pick and choose. Right. We all pick and choose what parts of the law we're going to obey and what parts we're not. And part of that is is the mystical faith, I suppose. But what about you guys? Have you ever had a uh, a, a habit that you broke or some kind of discipline where you had to teach your body to do something different? I've been on a diet lately, and that's been interesting. Yeah. And that's been like a real physiological change. Right. I've uh, cut out, you know, sugar and refined stuff and dairy and mostly meat and vegetables uh, is what I'm doing. And I had Wendy's today. I felt like fucking shit out there. <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> like, yeah, I did not used to feel like this after eating Wendy's. Oh, fine. And now I feel right. like... Yeah, like not. Yeah, like kind of like the time in the in the purity group when we slip up and look at the gang bang. Like it wasn't just I looked at porn. No, I looked at the, <laughs> the I looked at the I fucking find. donkey and the midget <laughs> and the Whoa. woman dressed. As Whoa! <laughs> uh, Seriously. I <laughs> so I don't know. That's one of those things that I mean. But but any anytime you're trying to break a habit like that. You come up against those. It's, it's like a spiritual thing, right? Even a therapist asking someone, how did you feel about that? Here's an interesting question. I, I was listening to, actually, it's Rob Bell's podcast, and he had this uh, rabbi on, and they were talking about the fact that in our psyche, we have the ability to to deal with that question. Like when, a, when, you're, when you're talking about something that happened historically in your life, and then the therapist goes, how did you feel about that? And you can go, I felt mad or I felt sad. Or the fact that we can even do that is really interesting. And I'm sure it's something atheist, but I was just going to say, oh, well, that's, you know, you know. But there's something, there's something to that that is, that is outside of that dualistic thinking, isn't it? Uh-huh. I don't know, just throwing that out there. You got quiet. You, you, People you, just think dramatic tape stuff. <laughs> yeah, dramatic recording pause. Just quit. You asked the question pregnant pause. about uh, like discipline and, and sort yeah. Of, How is discipline spiritual, John? Well, it, it's it's not natural. I, I I've been gleaning a lot from uh, from a cognitive behavioral therapy called ACT therapy, which focuses on 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 mindfulness as well as uh, like values and, and values based. 
learning. And so defining, Thank you. basically letting your values guide you instead of your feelings. So like, what do you really value? What do you really want? So don't wait for your feelings or your, or your motivation to catch up with your values. Act on your values and, and eventually um, the feelings will catch up with the values that you're making decisions on and acting on. So there's an element of kind of, you know, digging deep to, to do the disciplines or, or, or the actions that aren't necessarily natural. Right. You're saying Shia LaBeouf was right? Well, just, just do it. Just do it. Yes. Yeah. Like, that's that's faith, though. Faith <clears throat> is action. Faith only exists in action, right? Fear is almost so. When you have faith, it is because you're stepping out and putting something to action. The opposite of faith would be fear, right? And fear, when when we want to do something and we don't do it, is it because we don't want it enough? And that's why we're not taking action, and that's where fear just loves to live in that area. And maybe that's why we don't get the lives we really want, is because we're too... Going back to what you said about that poster that I was handed in a therapy group, it's like, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What do you want? Fear and faith live in that area, so it's it's like a choice, right? The, the, the thing we value, what you were talking about. I think for me, it's it's even. I don't know if it's it's quite on that depth. I think it's simpler. Where my proclivity after work is to check out, zone out. Maybe I you, I, I try to have a, a discipline of, um, of of exercising every day and taking a, a meditation sit every day. But I've been trying to okay. I'm going to play catch with my sons, you know, before dinner or something. And that's just not easy for me. I just, after work, I just don't yeah, want to hang out with, you know, elementary school age boys. I just, and even, I love them, but it's hard. Yeah. So I know how spiritual that is as much as it's just, um, just the weight of life and yeah. having kind of a proclivity to, you know, be on autopilot and check out. It's a lot of work to dig yourself out of that. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I equate that to some grandiose longing or, or spiritual thing I, for me it's just simple like be be proactively alert and engaged in my life instead of on autopilot and engage my kids and that's just an ordinary everyday thing because the dualistic part would say well you should you should be a good father John. like that's the and then shane gets in there and, and makes a little nest <laughs> a dualistic thing i try not to go there, there with it like I, I don't i don't know if i go there it doesn't make you feel no, because I've done that. You know, yeah, all yeah, us dads have. It, it, it's more just. The, I'm talking out of these are things that I value for myself that I want to fight for, but but that's where I think we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Some of the the where the benefit of some of the meditation comes in is you do learn to have compassion on yourself. You learn to, yeah, just just understand that you're human and that's just part of your human nature, and. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not like I'm, I'm kind of making it sound a little touchy feely or something. It's, it's not really what I mean by it. But, but there's an element of just of just treating yourself with compassion because you're not always going to live up to your values yeah, you or should to feel your ideals all the time. Yeah, you should feel it. I think you should feel it. I think one of the most valuable things about meditation is just an exercise in failure. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I mean, you're trying to blank your mind and it refuses to be blanked and so you're just constantly refocusing and trying it over and over and over again.
I don't try and black my mind anymore. Oh, so you're just blacking the mind. Well, it's, 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 it, 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 it's noting that's a thought and letting it go right. by, but not trying to stop it, right. just observing yeah, just it. Watch it. Just watch yeah. it. Just watch it. They're willing to do that. That's way more. I could, I could clear my mind like that. So, yeah, I guess we could end this talk on. on that. Was there something you were going to say, Steve, about. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, choosing faith, I think, is breaking that dualistic thought pattern. Because fear loves to live in, in, in making enemies or making a, an other. Does that make sense? How much of faith do you think is like something you choose versus it's just? Oh, it was absolutely. You we, think we so? have to choose faith? You really think that? Yeah. You see, I don't know if I agree. I don't I think, think it's different, different, different definitions of faith. Yeah, maybe we might. I think you believe something, and. If it's not, if it's if it's a fact, then it's just a fact. Like, no, but but you believe something, <clears throat> and but belief is different than faith. Okay, faith yeah. would be choosing to to act out or or step out on that belief. Okay, you can, you okay, can believe okay. something, but but faith. It's would like be, Hebrews eleven. <laughs> faith is sure the things that you're not seeing. Right. You're, you're, you're saying it, 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 it's it's um, you might not really have a choice in what you believe, but faith is stepping out in, Into, in action. Yeah, past the fear, past the dualistic. Okay, I guess past maybe even your denominations. You know, we're all right now. I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, not talking about your denomination, but I'm just talking about the listeners that that somewhere out there, there's a guy who's. You're questioning something that's going on, and, and maybe that's good. Yeah. Because that's faith. Maybe yeah. that's faith. That's not you being disobedient or a sinner or a questioner. Um, Matthew 23, Jesus talking about, there's a, there's a scripture, I can't remember the number, but it's in Matthew 23 where Jesus says, don't call another man father, authority. Like, that's very punk. That's in the Bible. <laughs> I remember at Mars Hill being taught, you better, you know, submit to your your authority figures. You know, you put your authority. That man is your pastor. He's your authority. You should listen to him. There's something to that. But the reason he, I would I would I would put my my faith in him is because I trust him, because we have a relationship. Because I did that. I like Steve. I, I trust Steve more than I would. Some guy you have a with relationship. Some title, yeah. Because elsewhere, well, he's a bishop, John. I mean, Paul. Fuck that I don't. Saint know. Paul refers to himself as, as a spiritual father to Saint Timothy. So I mean, there's there's yeah. other places where that verbiage is used, but he's using it in the context of relationship, and, yeah. Which is and that's where it is. where it's at. Yeah, and relationships are nuanced. Like, this will conclude episode six of the podcast. Punktheology.com is the website for this podcast. Man, if you could do us a solid. <laughs> does, does anybody really say that anymore? I don't know. But hey, uh, listeners, man, if you're still listening now, could you please leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, uh, tune in. SoundCloud, just hit that little heart button. I don't know. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Till next time, thanks for listening, and again, bye. Look at that.